Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. I'm really excited to bring you a conversation I've been waiting almost a year to have. And now that she's left Alibaba and joined L'Oreal, it really was the right time to talk with my friend, Chloe Gonzalez. As their newly minted Asia e-commerce manager, we naturally dove into the fascinating world of cosmetics in China. We talk about what types of cosmetics are most in demand in China, the popularity of live streaming in the beauty space, cutting edge marketing tactics for cosmetics that is particular to China, and why there are significantly more cosmetic consumers in China than there are in the West that are male. Enjoy. If you're a brand, you have to focus your marketing investment into one or two maximum hair products. So it's easier for a consumer to identify your brand with one specific SKU. So once you choose this SKU, then you invest, I would say, 50 to 60% of your marketing budget within those SKU across all different channels. So when a consumer talk about your brand, you would see, you know, this hair product on Xiaohongshu, on WeChat, on Weibo. And this is how, you know, the consumers will Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Chloe, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. We have been trying to get you on the show for quite some time, for a while. And it has a lot to do with where you were working before. So you can talk to us about that and include that in a bit of a, of a, a discussion around how did you end up in China? What have you been doing there over the last several years? Well, yeah, it's a quite an interesting story. Um, actually, I was not connected to China at all during all my uh, my study. Um, I did a you know master degree in digital marketing and one exchange semester in South Korea. And at that time, already I knew I wanted to go back to Asia at some point because I found them like so advanced, also in terms of technology. And then I went back to France and finished my study. Started working, and I received on LinkedIn um, an email from Brian Wong. Uh, the old vice president of Alibaba about a new program that they were launching, the Alibaba Global Leadership Academy. And this program uh, wanted to uh, have like foreigners from all over the world so they could come to Hangzhou, uh, China for at least one year to, uh, you know, discover the company, learn the language, do some rotations between like in different type of business units. So we could get, you know, all the story of Alibaba, know where the company and then go back to our home country, uh, you know, in Europe, in the US, etc. So I was selected among I think 3,000 uh, applicants. Uh, I still I still feel so lucky uh, that uh, I, I got to join. So I joined the Alibaba in 2016. And after one year uh, in the company, I decided to stay longer. Uh, half of the people who were recruited went back to their home country, but I was learning intensively Chinese and just really loved uh, my experience there. 
So I stayed three years in total, uh, working six months for AliExpress, one and a half years for Tmall World, and then one and a half year for uh, Tmall Global. And uh, basically, my role was to help uh, European brands uh, in the cosmetic, also modern baby category, to enter China, uh, open stores on Tmall Global, and make sure they have a great success in China. And I recently uh, moved from Alibaba and joined a new company, which is L'Oreal. Uh, so now I'm going to the brown side and actually helping them uh, do e-commerce uh, in Asia. Okay, so you said you were you were studying Chinese fairly intensely at the time. Need a job on how? How? Tell us a little bit about what you actually saw and experienced while living in Hangzhou, even for a brief period of time, compared to how it had changed uh, now that you're back living in Paris? Yeah, it was amazing to arrive in Hangzhou, you know. Uh, people were telling me, yeah, it's just a small city, 9 million people. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> so and and Hangzhou is is quite different from other cities in China, uh, where it's way more international, like Beijing and Shanghai. Hangzhou is way more local, so people couldn't speak uh, English. Uh, so at the time, it was quite difficult actually to get used to the lives there because I couldn't speak a word of Chinese. Uh, if I wanted to take a taxi to my home or to a hotel, I needed to have it written in Chinese because I couldn't read uh, the pinyin. So it was it took some time to to get used to it. But what I realized that I love being out of my comfort zone and discovering new things every day. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, China is just like evolving uh, so fast. And I really loved being part of this uh, of this move, especially in Alibaba, uh, which is such an innovative company. Um, it's big company, but it still acts as, an, as a startup, uh, you know, like uh, projects are being created uh, every week. Uh, I joined Tmall World Team, who was expanding Taobao and Tmall outside of China. Uh, we were 15, and after uh, like six months, we were more than 200. Like, it's just the pace uh, is crazy, and it was an amazing opportunity to be a part of that. That's incredible. I mean, yeah, the growth. We can't talk about it enough. We talk about it with a lot of guests on the show. And you really cannot, <laughs> you you really can't like through a podcast or through, uh, you know, a blog like this, uh, you know, uh, if, if, if this is ending up on, on our YouTube channel, you really can't get an impression of what everybody talks about. Everybody does talk about it. Everybody mentions it to some degree. And you just can't possibly imagine what we're talking about exactly. unless you go there. I've said it before. I was in I was in China for about two weeks back in 2007. And I thought, I need to get into the crane business because I've never seen more cranes in my life than I saw when I was in China. Um, okay. From a high level... Maybe just give us a 30,000 foot overview of the cosmetics market in China. Sure. Well, the cosmetic market in China has been growing a lot for the past years. Uh, China is the world's second largest cosmetic market in the U in the world after the U.S. Um, with an estimated revenue of 22 billion uh, USD. Uh, but this amount is supposed to triple uh, by 2024. Um, among all this, um, you know, uh, market, 25% of the sales comes from e-commerce, um, and actually, COVID has accelerated a lot of this trend. Um, within the cosmetic category, the biggest subcategories is, is skincare. Uh, skincare represents 50% uh, 50, 50 of the, the sales within the cosmetics. Uh, then you have hair care, then you have makeup, oral care. 
Um, our Chinese consumers, um, they spend a lot on the beauty products. I think we're going to talk a bit about later, but they have a really uh, extensive beauty routine. Uh, so they spend quite a lot. Um, usually, like more than half of uh, a Chinese woman, they spend at least 3,000 RMB per year, which is like about like $400. per year, Uh, but there is a a marginally higher proportion who spends even more, uh, like the middle class and and a consumer who loves uh, finding niche products, luxury products. And overall, I would say the market uh, in China is mostly taken by Western brands. Uh, Around 60% of the market, even more, 70% of the market is taken by Western brands. But we see uh, a big rise of uh, Chinese brands or C brands that are growing more and more in the market. You mentioned that they would spend about uh, 450. And I think you did me a favor and put it in kind of a U.S. dollar uh, conversion there. As a as a male, I guess I don't really even know how much cosmetics that actually amounts to. So, may I ask what somebody like you, you know, a young French woman, uh, average person, would spend on cosmetics in a year? I would spend less because I don't have such a big routine as they have. A Chinese consumer, they have at least six steps, so they need like six different products. Um, I would spend maybe 100, 150 euro per year on cosmetics. So that routine, that that's really interesting. And I'm trying to look even into the questions that I want to talk to you about. And I'm not sure if we actually get into that routine specifically. So if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to ask you, what is this routine? And it kind of ties into what types of cosmetic products are in most in demand in China. So can you tie my question about what is this routine you're referring to and tie that into what types of cosmetic products are most demand in China? And then after we talk about that, I want to know how it differs from the rest of the world, if it's not obvious. <laughs> of course. Well, I think that something that is really different in China is that beauty is associated with white skin and light skin. So uh, your consumers would, would use a lot of whitening uh, skincare products as well as sunscreen on a daily basis. So if we take a look at their routine, you know, the steps I was mentioning about, first step would be to remove your makeup, so makeup remover. Then you would have a facial cleanser. Um, then you would put on a mask, you know, the, the mask sheet. Then you would put a toner. Um, then you <laughs> have eye cream or serum. Uh, and then you would put your moisturizing cream and then sun cream. So that's basically all the steps that, you know, women in China are actually taking, which is much more, you know, that what we would do uh, in the West. Um, How so long does that take? <laughs> I, I'm thinking it's dinner time now. Like, how long does that take? Yeah, I would say 30 minutes. Um, I also discovered that when I was in China. Uh, I think a lot of these uh, steps actually also comes from Korea and Japan. Uh, I had a Korean uh, uh, friend in the program and they were always putting face masks in the morning, at night, you know, while they were cooking breakfast. It's just part of their routine, of their morning routine. You know, they include uh, uh, cosmetics and taking care of your skin within this uh, morning and night routine. Can we talk a little bit about something that you said there? And I think it'd be interesting. Do you have an idea? Can you explain to our audience why the the white skin or the light skin, where that comes from? Well, it's it's well seen to have white skin in China because um, it's 
it means that you have a job in the office and that you don't take the sun a lot. Uh, usually, you know, farmers and everyone working in the, in the, in the countryside or uh, farmers, you know, they are outside a lot, so they have brown skin, so they mean they have less money. So that's culturally why uh, having white skin uh, is actually, uh, you know, a beauty um, a beauty element for China. And that's also why, yeah, they use a lot of sunscreen. Uh, I mean, you see them also in China, every time there is some sun, they have those kind of umbrellas uh, to protect from the skin, from the sun, uh, because they have white skin. So if they take sunburn, it's actually, uh, uh, you know, way stronger than we would have uh, in our skin in the West. So that's basically the reason. Right. And I know this as well. I've looked into it, obviously, in my time there. You can't help but notice that on a sunny day, Everybody is walking around with umbrellas. Um, so they use umbrellas for sun. They use umbrella for rain. Um, and it really is exactly what you said, that it's a sign of wealth if you have light skin, because that means you don't need to work outside. And that's where it came from. It really is. It really is that that simple. Um, so it, it just, you know, and, and I'm, I kind of always felt bad, I guess, in a way of how much harder uh, people there had to, if they were just naturally darker skinned, they were already, you know, kind of uh, put behind and had to work harder. Uh, and I saw them, you know, working harder just in the amount of cosmetics that they would wear in order to try to get as 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 light as possible. Yeah, yeah completely. How does the product, the suite of products differ in China? And we've already alluded to, you know, uh, a lot of light uh, tones, but how does the product suite generally differ in China than it does from maybe the Western world? Um, I think in addition to like the, the whitening uh, trend, I think also in China, there is high pollution and a stressful lifestyle. Um, so consumers are really constantly looking for products that focus on a specific problem. So like uh, blemish skin, uh, acne skin, uh, black heads, dark circles, sensitive skin. <laughs> Yes. So, yeah, there's really a, a need for this type of product, sensitive skin. And I think another uh, point on what differs from the rest of the world, and I think we're going to talk about it later, is um, male male skincare and male cosmetic. Um, there's a really big rise of male grooming. Um, um, you know, men start also want more. Sorry, men also want to start uh, taking care of their skin and try on luxury products. Uh, they even start putting on makeup. Uh, I guess you've heard of the famous Li Jiaqi, uh, the famous uh, blogger, uh, Chinese blogger, who is also called the lipstick guy. So he has a very, very nice skin and doing a lot of live streaming about beauty products, but also lipsticks that he tries on on himself. So this definitely is a product that uh, would not be uh, bought or not really trendy uh, in the West, but that is uh, actually uh, working really well in China. I was going to I was going to maybe try to bring that up because we've seen that he is one of the biggest influencers in China and he's influential because he live streams while, uh, you know, his show is about cosmetics and makeup uh, and brands and application and, and, and the whole thing. So already that's, you know, an amazing uh, difference in and of itself. Let's talk real quick. I'm going to put you on the spot. Live streaming. How huge has live streaming been? Has it, I, I can't think of another market segment 
that it's been bigger bigger for than cosmetics. I mean, it's it's just been huge. Yeah, I mean, live streaming is huge uh, among all categories. China is definitely the largest live streaming industry in the world. Um, I think before COVID, there were like 500 million uh, live streaming users. But I think this uh, number skyrocketed after the COVID because people were actually stuck at home. And uh, that was a a really good way to to sell their products online. So, yeah, live streaming is just booming, um, especially during uh, festivals. Uh, We see like brands and bloggers doing 24-7 live streaming uh, because what is really interesting in China is that actually um, consumers use e-commerce not to save time as we would do in the West, but to spend time. So even though they don't want to buy anything, they would connect on Taba and Tmall to watch live streaming, to watch videos, to read uh, blogs and articles, etc. So that's also part of, you know, the way they like to be entertained is like, uh, you know, at 9 p.m., 10 p.m., even sometime 12 or 1 a.m., 2 a.m., they would connect and see what live stream are going on and, and discover new product. So that's of the kind of uh, uh, thing they do. Um, and now we've seen so many um, apps that are doing live streaming. I think there is almost more there are more than 100 uh, live streaming uh, app uh, or platform that can do live streaming. So this is definitely a big trend. And uh, especially for cosmetics, um, it's really, really trendy. And we've seen a lot of beauty bloggers like Lydia Chi and Via uh, doing this type of live streaming to help the brand boost the product. And actually a lot of brands, you know, they, they sometimes buzz thanks to those KOLs because if Lydia Chi or Via accepts uh, to feel Feature one of your products. Uh, I mean, it's just a really, big, really big, uh, you know, showcase and a big boom for yourself. So it's definitely uh, uh, something that is trendy uh, in the market. KOCs. So we have KOLs. Most of our audience now knows what KOLs are. We've started to cover KOCs, and so maybe you can explain a little bit about what a KOC is. KOCs means key opinion consumers. So it's basically influencers, but that are very smaller than big KOLs, key opinion leaders. So they would have maybe from, you know, 5,000 to 30,000, maybe sometimes 200K followers, so a smaller audience. Uh, But what we found is that uh, actually consumers can relate more to those influencers because they know they're not obviously paid uh, like Lydia Chi to uh, sponsor product and to talk about brands. So uh, especially like, you know, middle-class consumers who are more and more looking for niche products, they don't want those mass brands. They want to find, uh, you know, those niche products. And that's why they would maybe trust more uh, KOCs. And we've seen this, the trend of KOCs develop as well uh, on WeChat, where you have a, more and more uh, what we call private groups. Um, so, you know, you're an influencer and you will you would build a community uh, on WeChat and create a group of 500 people because you cannot have more than 500 people on a WeChat group and exchange with them and share your latest tips and stuff like that. So that's definitely something that is important for brands. And uh, that's why, you know, uh, uh, we advise brands to at least uh, invest um, 30% of their annual sales target into marketing. 
but this marketing investment has to include a various of different platforms. We we say 360 strategy, um, a 360 degree strategy, um, because it has to include uh, you know uh, marketing inside platforms, so inside Tmall, inside Jindong, uh, uh, but also outside those e-commerce platforms like Little Red Book, where you have a lot of uh, beauty influencers, uh, Billy Billy doing etc. etc. Uh, WeChat in in, in private uh, WeChat groups. So because there are so many consumers and they are also scattered in so many platforms, it's very important to uh, include them all and have a, a 360 strategy uh, to reach them. We tend to have a pretty savvy audience, so I'm, I'm sure that they're going to understand and know all the uh, platforms that you, you just mentioned as well. Uh, but thank you for the for taking on that question. I appreciate that. So how, how does the consumer behavior differ in China uh, versus the West when it comes to shopping for cosmetics? And I realize, you know, as I've realized in all of my interviews lately, that COVID has a special place in questions like this because it always impacts the answer. But that said... How does the consumer behavior life uh, or how does the consumer behavior differ in China uh, when it comes to shopping for cosmetics? I think well, the main difference is um, the time they put in the shopping process, um, because in China, like the the, the product safety uh, is a very key concern uh, for consumers when it comes to purchasing uh, skincare products. So they will try to collect as many data as possible from different type of channels. Um, for example, they will go on Tmall. Um, actually, the, the 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 search frequency for beauty products on Tmall is seven times higher than on Baidu, Baidu, which is kind of the Google of China. So they would go on Tmall and they will want to see, you know, all the consumers' comments, uh, you know, to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, they have good reviews. Um, then they will go on Little Red Book, which is kind of the Instagram of China, uh, to see if people are also talking about the brands. Um, they will go on WeChat, on Weibo, like they will really see on different type of platform before making a decision. So that, that's really something that is particular to Chinese consumers. And that's also why it's very important for brands uh, to use, like uh, we mentioned a bit before, this marketing strategy of having, you know, exposure and KOC and KOLs on all platforms uh, because, you know, Chinese consumers really need this trust and really need to have uh, people who have experienced the brand before, before making uh, a purchase. Does it change with age? Like as, I guess, as people age, does their buying behavior change? And what about anything to do with offline behavior? Yeah, of course, um, it changed with age. What is really particular about Chinese consumers is that they're very young. 80% of the Chinese cosmetic consumers are less than 35 years old. But actually, they start buying a cosmetics product early on, like from 18 years old. And what is really interesting is that from 18 to like 25, they will try as much as possible product. So they will just buy many, many, many different brands, try a lot of different products and brands. And then from 25, 30, uh, once they know, you know, what works well for their skin and you know try many brands i will stick to a specific product or specific brand that they like so that's why it's very important for brands to catch those uh, z generation and millennials at an early stage of their skincare discovery journey uh, because that's when you know they're willing to try uh, different type of uh, of products so given what you just said 
What about marketing strategy then? It must differ because you're maybe doubling down on the current customers you have that are older versus trying to convert uh, and then maybe spending more than you would in the West on the acquisition for the brand when they're younger because of how important it is, correct? Yeah, it's true. Uh, but actually, the marketing investment, I wouldn't look at, you know, how old is your consumer, but I would more look at what is your hero product. If you're a brand, you have to focus your marketing investment into one or two maximum hero products. So it's easier for a consumer to identify your brand with one specific SKU. So once you choose this SKU, then you invest, I would say, 50 to 60% of your marketing budget within those SKU across all different channels. So when a consumer talk about your brand, you would see, you know, this hero product on Xiaohongshu, on WeChat, on Weibo. And this is how, you know, uh, the consumers will recognize you. So I think it's more, uh, you know, on this side that brands should uh, uh, focus rather than the age, um, because that's how, you know, you, you create a buzz uh, on your product in China. Thank you for that. That's very insightful. Uh, I was not expecting that. So can you break down a little bit some of the products like a Shiseido, L'Oreal, some of the other brands? Can you talk about what are their hero products? Sure. Um, I mean, some brands have like hero products for more than 10, 15 years. Uh, for example, SK2, they have a legendary, legendary uh, facial uh, treatment essence who was introduced in like 1980s. Um, Estee Lauder, they have a advanced night repair uh, serum. Uh, Laneige is very famous for their sleep mask. Uh, Vichy is very famous for their mineral 89 uh, uh, bottles. So Every brand has uh, this type of uh, of uh, uh, of hero products, uh, and it doesn't mean that they're not selling the rest. It's just that hero product will allow you to bring traffic uh, to your store, and then once you know people come naturally to your store, then they will discover the rest of your line. And one strategy is to do like bundle pack, uh, so you have the hero product plus uh, another product for the you know the consumers to try uh, you know the other product from your range. So that's usually uh, how it works. It's like bringing traffic to your hero, uh, to the store thanks to your hero products and then having consumers discover the rest once they're already a consumer of your hero product. You also mentioned the cosmetics for men in China as a significant, uh, you know, market share. Um, you know, in the West, it's pretty strictly female. Can you talk a little bit more about... Why are men in China so interested in cosmetics? What kind of products are they using and what are they using them for? So it's true that we're entering in China uh, what we call a male beauty era. Uh, the sales of male beauty products have really increased year on year. And actually the search for uh, skin, the growth uh, of the search of skincare products for male is actually higher now than women. Um, and yeah, men men uh, consumers they're also very sophistic sophisticated. They want to take care of their skin, uh, and they're willing to try uh, different products as well. So what works the most is of course skincare. So you know, like if you have creams and serums, um, some more adventurous would try lipstick, like a Li uh, But it's mostly uh, you know skincare products. 
But actually, there's still a lack of choice uh, in China for men-only products, uh, especially in special skincare, um, which is a good opportunity for brands, you know, to uh, to launch uh, on, on the market. There's a big opportunity for that. Um, I remember in 2018, um, uh, L'Oreal did a, a joint study with TMIC, which is a Timul uh, Marketing Innovation Center. And together, you know, they gather data from consumers to identify, you know, what would be the key uh, trending categories. Uh, that's also how, uh, for example, uh, Mars created a, a, a spicy sneaker bar uh, to speci specifically for China. And what they saw is that, yeah, there was a very strong demand for uh, men care. And they created uh, L'Oreal men care line specifically to China for China based on this study. So there is definitely a strong, a strong demand and, and a good opportunity for brands to launch uh, their uh, men care line in China. Tips and advice that you would have for a cosmetic brand that's looking to enter the Chinese market before we get into specifics. So some, some general cosmetic specific advice. Sure. Um, I think my first tip would be to find the right partner, um, especially if you're a small brand and don't know well the market, you really need to have a local partner that will help you do all the operation, the marketing, the logistic, etc. Um, so you take some, take some time to find a good TP, you know, the team or partner, those agencies will help you. Um, you need someone to be on the ground and be reactive. Uh, as we mentioned, China is such a fast moving environment and there's more and more competitors. So it's very important to have a good partner. Uh, whom you trust uh, to, to work with you on this uh, market. Um, then second tips, uh, you know, as mentioned before, is really to build your brand around one or two SKU maximum. So even if you have a hundred products in your home country, don't bring those hundred products in China. Just start with a range of 10 products and you, you, you try the market and then you identify those two hero products and then you just focus your marketing strategy on, on those uh, hero products. And the last tip would be to invest in marketing because, you know, we've talked about it also before, but there is so many different social media platform, e-commerce platform, live streaming platforms. Uh, so it's very important for brands to, to invest in marketing, to put their product and their brand out there, uh, because otherwise there's not, there won't be any organic traffic coming to their store. So um, yeah, China is a long time is a long term journey. Um, in terms of investment, we um, usually advise brand to invest yeah twenty to thirty percent of their annual sales target in marketing to make sure that you know they can achieve uh, you know their their sales um, forecast and their sales uh, goals. What about some cool cutting edge tactics that you're seeing cosmetics uh, companies using to sell their products that, to consumers in China? I mean, we talked about live streaming KOCs, but th that's almost mainstream at this point. That's not even what you would consider to be, you know, cool and cutting edge. So any, any interesting, uh, cool cutting edge tactics that you're seeing that are being used in China, especially when they're not used the same or similarly in the West? Sure. Well, yeah, live streaming is definitely one. But another one I'm thinking about is IP collaboration. So IP collaboration is very, very, very uh, trendy and very used uh, specifically for cosmetic brands. So IP collaboration is basically having two brands doing a 
co-branding activity and creating a specific line or specific packaging or specific range of cosmetic products. And those IP collaborations are usually done during festivals, you know, like Double Eleven, Twelve Twelve, etc. Um, and for cosmetics, like uh, uh, we've seen, for example, Clarence who did a, a IP collaboration with Marvel uh, in 2019 with a limited edition makeup set. Uh, we've seen, for example, uh, Fenty Beauty, uh, you know, the brand of Rihanna, who did a, a, a limited edition makeup with Haiti. So Haiti is a very famous and trendy uh, tea brand uh, in China. Um, then we've seen like Perfect uh, Diary, which is a very trendy uh, Chinese brand who've done amazing IP collaboration with like the Forbidden City, uh, the Met Museum. Uh, they've done it also with Oreo. And this is very um, creative and interesting for, for Chinese consumers. They really love uh, the packaging and, and having new products. So when they have this kind of, uh, of IP collaboration, it's usually do a big buzz in the market. And that's really something that is less common in the West. And I think that would actually work pretty well. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely something that uh, can be interesting. What about homegrown cosmetics? The Chinese uh, cosmetic industry, the locally homegrown stuff. There's been a, a, a real rise in the number of Chinese cosmetic companies. What are they doing? You know, break it down a little bit. Talk to us about... <clears throat> What companies are coming up? How many companies are coming up? What are they doing that is giving them success competing against global brands, regardless of the fact that it's in China or not? It's really difficult to compete against global brands regardless, given their history and their, their market share and their loyalty. Um, what, how are they doing it? It's actually a good transition because we were talking about Perfect Diary doing a lot of IP collaboration. Perfect Diary is an example of a very rising uh, Chinese uh, brand. Um, and to, to name all other ones, there is also Chendo uh, doing a makeup uh, Chinese brand. There's also uh, Florasis uh, that is doing very good. There are some brands launched by uh, Chinese influencers like Big Eve, uh, which is a brand from Zhang Dai, uh, Fan Beauty from uh, the the influencer Fan Binbing. So there's definitely a lot of uh, Chinese brands launching. And I think what they do very good and why they are so successful is that because they are Chinese, they know very well the market. They know very well Chinese consumer, Chinese culture. So when they do marketing campaigns, like we mentioned the IP, it really resonates with Chinese consumers. Um, the IP that Perfect Diary did with uh, uh, the, um, the Forbidden City, I mean, the, the product was so beautiful. It was so amazing. And, and Chinese consumers, consumers really loved it. So they know really well how to uh, market to Chinese consumers. Another thing that they do good and that uh, makes them so successful uh, is that they have really big ambitions. Um, they're expanding massively online, but also offline. Uh, for example, Perfect Diary uh, had like 200 stores this year, but they're planning to open 600 uh, by 2022. Um, and they really want to become a leader uh, in China's cosmetics. So they're putting a lot of investment uh, to do so. 
And I think the third thing that they uh, that makes them successful is that they know all the latest marketing uh, trends uh, that are expanding in China. So I don't know if WeChat uh, is launching a new feature, if uh, Timo is launching a new feature, they will be the first one, you know, wanting to try it and using it uh, because they, they are very familiar with the environment. So that's uh, really the, the three key things that makes them, uh, you know, uh, Popping out of the of the crowd and and, and succeeding well uh, in the Chinese market. I think from my point of view, it's starting to sound very busy and very complex and very competitive in the cosmetics industry in China. Um, so kudos to you for just walking right in there uh, and uh, and go toe to toe with them yourself. Congratulations on that. These Chinese companies. How are they going to compete globally? Are they going to try to compete globally? It has been, and maybe the cosmetics industry is different. From what I've begun to understand, you know, whether it's apparel or other things, they don't necessarily need, because market in China is so huge, um, nor do they really try or even really ever aim to be successful outside of China. Whereas most of the rest of the world is pretty geared up and always wanting to expand and always get into new markets. This is one of the biggest differences I found with Chinese companies or brands is that, it, you know, from regardless of industries, that they don't typically have that same thirst or appetite for global expansion. So would you, what would you say about the Chinese cosmetics brands? Are they looking global? If so, how are they planning to compete? If not, why? Yeah, it's a very good, uh, very good question. Uh, I think you're right. You know, if you're a Western brand, uh, you want to export to China because you know Chinese consumers love consumer brands. But it's actually different the other way around. Uh, I don't think uh, you know Western people are, want to try a Chinese product. I think unfortunately there is still a lack of trust. Uh, you know, regarding what is made in China. Uh, you know, you know they would maybe assimilate it to something very cheap, not good quality. Um, so I think it will take time to you know uh, uh, change the minds of, uh, of the western people and i think chinese brands know it um, if they want to export um, they will have to be really transparent about you know how the products are made ingredients that's really something that is important in the west uh, we've seen you know big uh, big trend rising of uh, vegan and culture free and uh, organic products which is not like labels that are actually famous and used in China. So I think it will take time. I don't have any example of a Chinese cosmetic brand that is doing well abroad, but hopefully one day. Well, and, and you know, animal testing, that was always such a huge, huge thing. I mean, and you mentioned it exactly. And I was going to ask, you know, like, uh, you know, the vegan or bacteria culture or, or um, animal testing or what have you. If that doesn't matter... I mean, are you literally changing your packaging when you create the products or the same product um, from the same brand going to China? Does it just have a different look and feel? So in China, so the 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 test on animal has just been uh, removed. But before that, uh, you know, if you could only sell in cross border channels, if you want, if you were a vegan brand or didn't want your product to be sold uh, on the Chinese market. So basically, if you're a vegan brand, the only 
channel you could use was Timo Global, you know, the cross-border platform. Um, and that's what most of the European uh, vegan brands are using. Um, but now they will be able to sell on a Timo Classic and other e-commerce platform without doing this test. But uh, on cross-border platform, you couldn't change your uh, packaging. That was actually the goal is like a, a Chinese consumers shopping directly in uh, French or you know US pharmacies and buying products like they are exactly on the home market. So they wouldn't change anything uh, on the packaging. But if uh, a brand wanted to sell offline in China, so they would have to register the product and then they would have to change the packaging and have the Chinese, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, explanation Chinese uh, on the packaging. I've tried to wean COVID discussion out of a lot of my podcasts because I'm kind of over giving it oxygen. Um, it's there. It's a here or it's here. It's a thing. But I will ask. How has COVID impacted marketing, purchasing, uh, branding, strategy, any of that? How, uh, just even the products that people are buying? Sure. So in terms of products, we've seen a few trends emerging um, because people are wearing the mask. Uh, there is like this new type of uh, skin issue, which is mask knee or mask Acne, uh, which involves like, yeah, acne breaks out, uh, you know, from wearing a mask. Is that a thing? Does that really happen? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does. It, it does. I guess. Okay. Because of the oils and... Uh, it does happen, uh, especially if you're not changing your mask, you know, regularly or if you're, you know, spending the whole day uh, with it. Um, so there have been like a, a few keywords in China that have become quite strong on social media on shopping platform which is skin repair and also sensitive skin uh, because uh, you know you, you use face mask all the, all the time and you use disinfectant all the time so um, you know they they found their skin very sensitive and they desire a product that can can help them uh, you know with this sensitivity so that's why we've seen a lot of brands uh, you know like uh, Aven, La Roche-Posay, uh, SkinCeuticals uh, which are skincare brands focusing on sensitive skin um, that you know, their sales grew in China during the, the COVID period. Um, and then in terms of marketing, I think the switch has been going even more digital. Uh, you know, we talked about live streaming. I mean, the live streaming users just boomed during the COVID because there was only where you could actually shop. Um, so that's definitely uh, something that was uh, impacted by COVID. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of product also, uh, yeah, lipstick have, uh, lipstick self, lipstick sales, sorry, have lowered for sure, uh, compared to eyeshadows who, who grew quite a lot. Uh, Ashley, who was on the podcast shared this as well, which I found quite funny. Yeah. Yeah. Ashley brought that up too. Just saying anything, you know, there was like, she was talking about, you know, inside body, outside body. We talked about that kind of stuff. And then she was like above mask, below mask <laughs> was like, it was, it's, it's now a thing. Yeah. Why are, why not cosmetic companies create, um, face masks and maybe they already do that have, uh, you know, uh, lotions and things in them already <laughs> to help make your skin. I mean, you're wearing a mask to go to bed. You wear a mask in the morning or what have you. You're actually wearing a mask during the day. It should be helpful. Is this a thing yet? It's not yet, but you got something. <laughs> 
<laughs> I feel like if it had some nice lotions or something. I mean, I remember now. I mean, they've gone so like Kleenex, right? Tissues. Yeah. You could get tissues with with oils and tissues with yeah. lotions and tissues with all these things. And just because you're wiping and using them on your skin, who knows? Maybe there's a whole a whole market for something there. That yeah, we'll go together on that. We will share the IP on that fifty fifty. <laughs> Now, what about L'Oreal? Let's talk about L'Oreal a little bit more specifically. What um, what are you bringing to the table in your new role? What um, and I know that you were only a few weeks in, so you know I don't mean to put you on the spot just yet. But what are some 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 uh, strategy frames that you're starting to kind of think and put together for L'Oreal? And what's what's maybe the the, the strategy for L'Oreal over the next year or two with regards to you know the cosmetics in China? Sure. So, well, L'Oreal has more than 20 brands, you know, so it's a very big a group and every brand have, uh, you know, entered the China at different stages. Um, so it really depends on the brand. My role would be to focus on brands that either need a boost or brands that are not yet launched in the China market. Um, so, um, yeah, my role will be to based in Paris, do a lot of education about China uh, because, you know, the, the, the teams in France are the one, uh, you know, thinking about what would be the next product launch the next two, three years. Uh, they are the one, you know, creating assets uh, for look, for globally, you know, um, uh, all the, the visuals that will be used in China. So they have to know also what consumer wants and, you know, what would be uh, working well in China. So that will be my role in the first step is really educating the local team uh, to uh, to adapt their asset, their products to Chinese consumers and also be the bridge with the local Asian teams to make sure that the headquarter uh, fill them with all the assets they need, all the things they need uh, from the headquarter to create uh, interesting uh, uh, marketing strategy, uh, product campaign. Uh, we've talked about the IP, for example. So uh, the headquarter also has to come up with uh, ideas or a new product or a, a limited edition. So this has to come to, from the headquarter. So I will be, uh, you know, leading this type of projects to make sure that. Uh, um, you know, the brand can uh, have successful campaign and, and boost uh, their sales even more in the Chinese market. Okay. Well, good luck with that. Uh, wish you all the success. Thank you so uh, much. I'm so happy for you in your new role. Who, somebody maybe in your network, outside your network, or somebody that you're just a fan of <laughs> that we can say, hey, Chloe says you should be on our podcast. Who is somebody in your network that you would like to hear if you would listen to our show? Who would you like to hear being on our podcast? Sure. I would say Yassine Regragui. He's a, an old uh, colleague of mine. He was working in Alipay and he's really the, the, an amazing fintech expert. So everything related to fintech, digital currency. Uh, uh, he lived in China for more than six years. So he's also a very good China expert. And uh, and yeah, I'm sure he will be very interesting, uh, a very different industry and sector. But uh, I'm sure you'll get uh, uh, to let to you'll get to have a lot of insight from him as well. Yeah, finance in China is also incredibly innovative uh, sector for sure. Anyway, Chloe Gonzalez, Asia e-commerce manager at L'Oreal. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. 
My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.